Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kira Mulvaney. And it is, for those of us here in the United States, the start of daylight saving time. Which of course is sold to us under the cheery catchphrase, spring forward. Which actually just means I lose an hour of sleep. Uh, sleep that at my age I very, very badly need. And now, of course, I also have to go around the house changing a bunch of clocks. But, on the plus side... At least we didn't last night have any triple hiders starting at 10 p.m. <laughs> and finishing at 2, which would have been 3. So we have that at least. But if I know you, Eric, you can't be too excited about missing precious sleep either. No, although it's not so much the turning forward of the clocks that has me exhausted as we're recording this on Sunday. It's the return of bar and bat mitzvah season. Um, for, for those who are unaware, when you are Jewish and or have a lot of Jewish friends, uh, by which I mean my wife has a lot of Jewish friends. I don't have friends of my own anymore. Um, but <laughs> from the time your first kid is hitting 13-ish until your last kid is hitting 13-ish, it's just so many Saturdays sacrificed to bar and bat mitzvahs. Now, thanks to the pandemic... I got a nice respite in the heart of my bar and bat mitzvah years. You know, there were a lot of Zoom mitzvahs, uh, a lot of them that had uh. smaller parties during COVID. So, you know, I might have been invited to a big 100-person party, but I wasn't invited when the guest list was cut to 25 or whatever. But now, bar and bat mitzvahs are all the way back. And this was the second of three Saturdays in a row for us, back to back to back. Uh, so I finally get a Saturday off from having any late fights to try to stay <laughs> up for. And instead, I'm out until 11.30 at a bat mitzvah. It was a lovely ceremony, nice party. I'm not targeting this specific affair, but uh, I am exhausted. Got home around midnight, watched a fight I'd missed from the afternoon that we'll be discussing shortly, fell asleep around 1, and then woke up at like 6.30 and had to deal with the confusion of... My watch says 6.30. Is it really 6.30 or is it actually 7.30? Did this thing self-update? I don't know what self-updates and what doesn't. And so by then, my brain is going and I'm, I'm fully awake and that's that. And for the record, it was 6.30 that felt like 5.30. It was that 6.30. So I, I slept like four and a half hours. It's going to take me a whole week to catch up on sleep. First world problems, right. I suppose. Exactly. But uh, I'm grumpy, Kieran. That's the bottom line. I'm grumpy. But the important thing is we've gotten our excuses in for the quality of this podcast <laughs> in early. At this point, we've been doing this long enough. Our excuses are implied. We, <laughs> everyone, right. everyone knows it's going to be kind of mediocre here and there. Yeah. You know, our, our shortcomings, excuses implied. Right. And the basic root of all the excuses is we're washed. Right. And it <laughs> yes. can take... A variety of different forms or, or excuses, but that's fundamentally what it right. comes down to. Uh, yes, 100%. Two, <laughs> two washed podcasters just trying to get through another show. Exactly. Uh, coming up on this week's Hopefully Not Too Washed podcast, we will welcome our friend Dan Rayfield to the podcast to talk about some of the main topics in the world of boxing right now. Also, at the end of the show... As the Russian attack on Ukraine continues, we will pay tribute to the Klitschko brothers as I count down the top five performances by either Vitaly or Vladimir. But we begin by breaking down the action this past Friday night on Showbox, where Raul Marquez was the busiest man in the building, but Ardriel Holmes and Vernon Brown were both fairly busy themselves in what turned out to be an entertaining mix of styles in the main event. Indeed, we'll have more to say about Raul and his son Giovanni shortly, but let's start with that main event a 10-rounder in the middleweight division. 
an outcome expertly predicted by the two of us. We both <laughs> picked Holmes by unanimous decision, and it played out that way. The Flint, Michigan native won by scores of 98-92, 97-93, and 96-94. But Holmes did not keep the fight at the distance we expected. Much of this bout was fought at close quarters, uh, sometimes along the ropes. The six foot two inch Holmes let the five foot seven inch Brown inside and showed that he's not a bad infighter for a tall, skinny guy. In the end, the two Southpaws produced a fight with a solid pace, plenty of action and intrigue, a competitive bout, but one with a clear winner. Uh, Holmes moves to 12 and 0 with five KOs, while Brown slips to 13 and 2 with nine knockouts. Kieran, how close was it on your scorecard? What impressed you about either fighter? And how high would you say Holmes' ceiling appears to be? So I had it 97, 93. I thought Brown closed the gap somewhat between rounds about five and seven before Holmes pulled away again down the stretch. I uh, I liked what I saw from Holmes. Um, when he decides to use it, he has a, a really nice reach. Um, but he also, as you alluded to, he uses those lengthy arms to generate some real torque when he's in close too. Uh, contrary to his self-description he certainly did not look much like a pot shotter uh, right. that's for sure um i don't know how much of the inside fighting was because that's what he wanted to do um because he thought he could use that long-armed leverage to his advantage against a much shorter opponent whether he was pacing himself a little bit after so long out or, or whether brown simply forced them into it um he certainly spent more time on the ropes than i would have liked if i'd been in his corner um i would have liked to have seen him used more of his natural advantages rather as i expected him to do when we were doing our predictions um but yeah you know maybe just given the nature of the opponent they they felt that this was the right way to go and it, and it certainly worked for him um you know even though brown had his moments and i did give him a couple rounds they were really just moments uh, you know most of the time when brown did try to unload with holmes against the ropes holmes soaked it up without any problem he the thing that I really noticed was he was very, very relaxed in there. He, he looked very comfortable. At no stage did it look as if he felt he was under any kind of pressure. And I was really taken with some of his upper body movement. You know, watching a much taller fighter duck effortlessly under the punches of a much shorter fighter, the way he was doing at times, it was, was pretty impressive. Um, how high is his ceiling? I, I just don't know. He's 27. He doesn't have an endless amount of time to develop and grow, but, you know, and he was fighting a decent guy, but not by any means a world beater. But this is sort of the time where if he's got something there, you'd want to see him, you know, especially after a couple of years out, uh, you know, sort of press the accelerator and, and really see what he's got. And I would like to see what he's got. I'd like to see him again. He looks like he's got a good ring IQ. He's enjoyable to watch. Like I said, I really enjoyed seeing how relaxed he was in there. Um, yeah, I'd like to see how much farther you can go. Um, how about you? Do you have any other thoughts? Uh, where would you like either guy to go from here, actually? So, yeah, a few thoughts. Uh, first of all, uh, shame on us for not uncovering the nugget when previewing the fight last week that Ardrail Holmes was Clarissa Shields' high school boyfriend and prom date. I I'm, I'm firing our research intern for not uh, letting <laughs> us know about that. Uh, as far as fight analysis, uh, credit to both guys for looking sharp and crisp despite long layoffs. And... I was really impressed by Holmes's versatility in terms of being able to make any distance work. You know, it's no surprise that he yeah. can jab and fight at long range, but he was good and close and really knew how to smother Brown's offense. And he occasionally let the fight be at mid range and, and did well there. Also, um, both guys went to the body. Well, Holmes particularly did damage there, hurting Brown with body shots a couple of times. Meanwhile, I'm giving a D minus grade to Brown's cut man. 
or, or, or maybe to the Ziploc company or whoever made the bag <laughs> he was using for ice. He was uh, icing down Brown's head yeah. and neck after the third round. Then he turned the bag over and it opened right up, dumping ice cubes everywhere. I don't know if it was a faulty bag or if the corner man failed to press it till it clicked. You got to make sure it's sealed. Um, That's right. But at least it wasn't a rubber glove filled with cold water. Uh, but still, uh, poor, poor performance there. Um, so I, you asked me a question about the fight and uh, the fighters and where I'd like to see these guys go from here. I suppose I should answer that. Um, Brown says that he plans to fight at welterweight. That seems wise. Um, yeah. As we said last week, he's fought everywhere from 139 to 159. But his lack of height is a problem at middleweight and junior middleweight. So, yeah, welterweight makes sense. I would welcome him back as a showbox opponent against a welterweight prospect. As for Holmes, he specifically called out Paul the Punisher Kroll afterward. Um, we just saw Kroll on Showbox last month fighting to a controversial draw against Marquise Taylor. I like it. You, you don't hear prospects call out other prospects right. often. Um, it's a perfectly sensible Showbox fight. Um, I think I would favor Holmes based on their most recent performances, but... That's a fine fight, and if Holmes wins, he seems to me a guy who could be facing real contenders by, like, this time next year. All right. If the main event was a predictably competitive 10-round distance fight, uh, the lightweight co-feature was predictable in the opposite direction. Uh, Edwin de los Santos came in at 13-1 and with 12 KOs. Luis Acosta entered with a record of 12-0 and with 11 KOs. So logic dictated that a knockout was likely, which is just what we suggested last week, and that is exactly what we got. Just 45 seconds into the second round, De Los Santos landed a straight left hand, set up by a couple of jabs, and Acosta was deposited flat on his back. Referee Mark Nelson waving it off without a count. Uh, De Los Santos had also scored a flash knockdown in the first round. Uh, you commented last week, Eric, on Acosta's poor level of opposition to this point. So was he just overmatched and ill-prepared? For a step up like this and what are your thoughts on Dolores Santos now that he's improved to one and one in showbox appearances yeah I'm gonna say this kind of quietly just in a whisper uh this was a very rare case of a showbox mismatch um mm. Acosta just wasn't as good as his record implied and and he looked overmatched from the start Delos Santos was bigger he was faster and Acosta who became the 211th boxer to lose his zero on Showbox. Wow. Um, he showed me nothing to indicate he was ever going to get anything going in this fight. Uh, just too big a leap up in class from fighting very low-level club fighters to facing a real prospect who can really punch. De Los Santos looked good. Uh, I will take him at his word that he wasn't properly trained for his previous Showbox appearance, but at the same time, you couldn't tell anything too definitive from this um you know just as he shouldn't have been written off after one loss on showbox he also shouldn't be elevated to elite prospect status mm. off this one win uh you know the, the jury is still out but he certainly does have power uh it's just ended too early for us to find out uh if he was going to gas out again uh it was really after the second round last time there was no after the second round this time um but yeah i mean impressed with what little we saw of course um and now i do have to quickly do my standard rant about the ending uh referee mark nelson very good ref um he worked all three fights on this card yeah. not an easy task but he waved it off with no count uh de los santos landed a clean shot costa went down banged his head. It looked bad. It was bad. Having seen him a few seconds later, I can say definitively he wasn't getting up. But Nelson couldn't have known that for sure the instant he hit the canvas. If this is Fury Wilder 1, 
Nelson changes heavyweight history if he waves that one off without a count. And Fury, I think, went down just as hard as Acosta did. My main thing is you aren't saving anyone's life by getting the doctor in the ring five seconds earlier. You have the discretion of a 10 count. Use it. See if he snaps right out of it. No matter how hard a guy goes down, start a count. Give it a couple of seconds. See how he's responding. I know it didn't matter in this fight but it might matter in the next one. And uh, I apologize to everyone who's sick of hearing me do this rant. I've done it several times, but uh, you know, don't blame me. Blame the referees who keep forcing me to do the same old rant. <laughs> and I'm not a fan. I made a note that I wanted to try and bring up and I'd forgotten, you know, uh, where to put it. Not a fan of having the referee do three fights in a row. Yeah. Um, it, Nelson's, a, like you said, a very good referee and he did fine, but that's, that's asking a lot mm-hmm. um, of a referee, I think, to do that. Yeah, I wonder if possibly... They had another ref scheduled and who, who dropped out and they just had to improvise. But yeah, if they yeah, sort of planned be. it out this way, I, I agree. They should try to avoid that. Um, now for the opening bout. Uh, but the one we actually spent the most time talking about in advance, the pro debut of 21-year-old welterweight Giovanni Marquez, the son of Showbox analyst Raul Marquez. He wasn't handed a pushover for his first fight. He took on 2-0 Nelson Morales, and the first round was close. In fact, two of the judges gave it to Morales, but Marquez took over from there, dominated the rest of the fight despite hurting his left hand in round two, and won a unanimous decision after four rounds by scores of 40-36 and 39-37 twice. Kieran, any takeaways from the first 12 minutes of Giovanni's pro career? And for either his sake or Raul's, should his next few fights be <laughs> off TV, not on showbox cards, where he can be treated more like a normal rookie year boxer? Yeah, look, I thought that was a good pro debut for for, for Marquez. Look, Morales is pretty good for a pro uh, uh, debut uh, opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's physically strong. He didn't come to lie down. Uh, I, I thought Giovanni showed a good variety of punches. That uppercut in particular was highly effective. And that's a difficult punch to throw with confidence, especially when you're a young boxer. Look, he was obviously a little bit tense and anxious. So he was putting a lot of weight behind all his punches. Um, but that's also life in four-rounders, where, where you don't have a lot of time to play with. Um, obviously, against better boxers, he won't want to stand in front of his opponent squared up quite so much. But he won't. He'll evolve and he'll develop. Um, and yes, I don't think there's any question he should move off air for a, a while. Not that he can't handle the pressure and attention. He's grown up with it, and his dad knows how to protect him from it. And I'm sure he'll handle it all just fine. But... The requirements of a TV fight are entirely different from those of the requirements of a young boxer starting his career. He's going to want at least some fights where he can just concentrate on improving different elements of his game. And maybe not always looking great doing it because you've got to work some stuff out, you know, sacrificing the short-term aesthetics for the long-term benefits. Whereas you're Gordon Hall, it doesn't matter if he's the son of your friend. You have to put on compelling bouts, even if they have obvious A-sides. And the demands and expectations of viewers... On, for TV fights are different as they should be. And so I suspect that's what will happen. I suspect you'll, you'll have a few fights um, in very showboxy locations like Deadwood, South Dakota, mm-hmm. but um, on untelevised uh, undercards and he'll work some stuff out and he'll improve. Then he'll pop up on showbox periodically as we'll monitor his progress. Uh, and then hopefully he'll, he'll move on to, to other things. But uh, yeah, it certainly makes sense for him to learn his craft out of the spotlight, I think. Um, uh, by the way, shout out to our buddy Raul, who I thought gave some great corner instructions between rounds. Mm-hmm. I thought he was super clear, super calm, 
always love trainers who tell their fighters to like just jab anywhere the body the right. the gut the shoulder anyway there's just not enough jabbing to the body nowadays it's it's just it's just really it's like there was george foreman's favorite punch was yep. just like the jab to the bread basket and yeah just just don't worry about the head all the time just hit guys wherever you can um and obviously, you know, he has his hands full, Raul, but if he looks like he's the kind of guy, if he wanted to train other fighters, he probably could as well. But he's probably busy enough. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. And yeah, he did. He was calm in the corner. He looked nervous before the fight started. Once sure. once the fight got going, yeah, Raul seemed fine. But seeing him sort of standing next to Giovanni in the ring during the intros yeah. as they're getting ready to come to the center of the ring for the instructions, uh, Raul, Raul looked like he had a lot on his mind in that moment. Yeah. All right. So that Showbox triple header started the boxing weekend, but quite a bit of thunder was stolen on Saturday in Nottingham, England, when a new frontrunner for 2022 Fight of the Year emerged. Uh, Lee Wood recovered from a knockdown at the end of the first round and a deficit on the scorecards to drop Michael Conlon in the 11th round, although Conlon and his team insisted it was a slip, and then knock him out cold and through the ropes in the 12th to hand Conlon his first loss as a professional and retain a featherweight belt. Kieran, so much to talk about here. I don't think this will be the 45-second quickie recap that we envisioned <laughs> prior to the fight playing out the way it did. So take this in whatever direction you like, but I'll start by asking you, what were your thoughts on the fight as it unfolded and just how shocked were you at the way it ended? Well, so I don't know about you, but whenever I'm watching a fight that I know I'm going to have to comment on or summarize, whether it's like sitting ringside and writing a piece or watching it, knowing that we're going to talk about it on the podcast, I'm often sort of writing a narrative in the back of my mind, even as I watch it, right? It's like that deadline journalist trick of always having the lead ready to go and you have to keep revising the lead. But (laughs) but this is one of those fights where where my narrative changed quite a number of times while I was watching it. I've always been a tad skeptical of Michael Conlon as a pro. He's never really wowed me. but after a few rounds, I was thinking, hmm, you know, I may well have underestimated him here because there was so much to like early. You know, his punches were crisp and strong, so strong and compact. Uh, he was showing some very good defense as well. And he was doing like lots of nice little things. He was showing a lot of feints, looking downstairs, but shooting upstairs. Um, and I thought early on, oh, OK, I, I have underestimated him. This is a very, very good performance. But. Then as the fight progressed, I did find myself wondering, you know, where does he fit in the scheme of things? He's Could he be an Emmanuel Navarrete or a two-handed Gary Russell Jr.? And and I wasn't as sure about that, particularly as, as the fight progressed. He, he wasn't doing much to change it up. He looked like he was going to get Wood out of there early, then Wood hung in there. And, and then you felt it was kind of incumbent on Colin to sort of show another look. And he wasn't doing that he he was doing the same thing over and over again and frequently it looked as if it might bring the fight to an end but it, it wasn't and you know by about round nine or so you condom was sort of boxing a little bit differently and I, I think he was flinging so many power punches i think that was probably tiring himself out an awful lot but all the time while I was going through these various narratives in my head, I was all focused on Conlon. I was missing the real story, which was Lee Wood. Wood never stopped coming forward. He never stopped trying to fight fire with fire. And I think importantly, was launching power shots to the body uh, down the stretch. He was just rifing uh, Conlon's body whenever he could get in close. Um, you mentioned that 11th round knockdown. 
And yeah, I, the way that Conor went down, it absolutely looked to me as if his feet had given way under him. But at the same time, a punch did land. So I don't think the referee had much choice but to call it a knockdown. But given what unfolded next, maybe there was a significance to that moment. You know, Carl Frotch suggested afterwards that maybe it gave Wood that belief for that final round. Because I thought he was probably losing the 11th at that point. Right. Which would have left him in a pretty deep hole on the cards. As it was, the cards were a lot closer than I thought they would be. Um, two cards had uh, Conlon up by one point going into the 12th, and one had him up by three, I think. Um, but that, you know, that moment by saving that 11th round and making it a 10-8 round did close it right up. It, you know, maybe did give Wood belief, and maybe it exposed that Conlon was starting to struggle. And the ending, I will say now that Alfie, the Showtime Boxing Podcast cat, was startled <laughs> and flew off my lap when that punch landed. Because <laughs> um, I did not quite see that coming. Um you know, from the broadcast angle, it's really hard to see the punch, but I saw a video from another angle that was taken by a fan just a few rows back from ringside um, on the other side of the ring. And you could see much more clearly. It was a beautiful short right hand mm. that, that landed and it like audibly cracked Conlon's jaw or temple. It was a great shot. So, yeah, I spent a long time watching this writing different leads, imagining different talking points. But the real story was that just the remarkable resilience of Lee Wood, the incredible strength and stamina of both men, uh, and how boxing can be at once beautiful and inspiring and downright terrifying. It was very sad to see Wood clearly completely unable to revel in his win um, yeah. because his primary concern by a mile was Condon's well-being. And, and, you know, I commend him for the way he handled himself. But if this doesn't end up winning fight of the year, then we'll have had a pretty good year of fights. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, I'll have to look up and find that that alternate angle replay because, of course, on the broadcasts, they didn't end up showing any replays, perhaps right. uh, out of sort of concern that, uh, you know, if Conlon had just gotten hurt, they didn't want to yeah. replay it. I'm guessing that's what the production team was thinking, but I'm sitting there waiting to see this punch again and never did uh, see it. And the only other thing that I'll add to your point about that knockdown in the 11th, perhaps giving Wood a little uh, extra motivation coming into the 12th and sensing that the fight was close. I wonder also if there's some level of now Conlon's corner has to mm. realize eh, the fight's kind of close. You, you can't just uh, play it defensive in the 12th round. Not yeah. that he necessarily would have and not that he had the energy to like run away for that, that whole round. But if the 11th round is 10-9 Conlon, he does come into the 12th round with the kind of lead where yeah. he could play it safe and still win the decision. So, um, yeah, it's that. And, and I think it was correct to call it a knockdown for the reason you said a punch landed, even if his foot slipped a little yep. bit, the ref kind of had no choice. And yeah, that's a three point swing right there that uh, may have impacted what we saw in the 12th. Yeah. Um, we have a light weekend of boxing ahead, but there are two televised main events worth mentioning, both Saturday night, March 19th, uh, in the small room at Madison Square Garden on ESPN. Edgar Berlanga, who has now gone the distance twice in a row after starting his career with 16 straight first-round KOs, takes on perhaps his best opponent yet, Steve Rolls, whose only loss came against Gennady Golovkin. And from the opposite coast in Los Angeles on the zone. It's welterweight mega prospect turn contender, Virgil Ortiz Jr. He meets British Southpaw Michael McKinson, who's undefeated at 21 and 0, but just two KOs among those 21 wins. Uh, Eric, either of those fights grab you at all? Well, neither fight is big enough to present a valid excuse to skip a bat mitzvah, unfortunately. <laughs> um, Ortiz is a big enough talent that I'm 
always interested in watching him fight against anyone. And while McKinson shouldn't be a threat to beat him, he is, as you noted, a southpaw. He can be a bit awkward. It might be a good fight for Ortiz's development. And interesting about McKinson, yes, he has that lousy 9.5% KO rate. But notably, in his last four fights, he scored six knockdowns. Um, Not against anyone on Virgil Ortiz's level, but still, maybe he's a slightly better puncher than the KO percentage suggests. Still, the likely outcome is that Ortiz moves to 19-0 with 19 KOs. Uh, Quite a streak he has going. And speaking of KO streaks, Berlanga, boy, the shine is off. Uh, I was skeptical throughout that streak, but at least it made every fight fun. Uh, Without it, He's just another fair to Midland prospect, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rolls is a little undersized here. I'm not sure how stiff a test he is, but because I'm not sold on Berlanga as a serious future contender, I suppose this fight might tell us something. But uh, anyway, I will be at a bat mitzvah, and I will count on you, Kieran, as you did with Wood Conlon, to send me a spoiler-free message letting me know <laughs> if there's anything I should make a point to watch when I get home. You bet. All right. Time for the tweet of the week. My turn to pick it. Uh, Thanks to everyone on Twitter for your submissions this week. Uh, That's how I view Twitter. Every tweet by anyone in the Uh, world is just an attempt to get named tweet of the week by Raskin and Mulvaney. So thanks to everyone for their submissions. But the winner this week is Michael Buffer, uh, officially the Showtime Boxing Podcast's second favorite ring announcer. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah, Um, I think so. Okay. So he had a quote retweet that made me chuckle. Uh, The original tweet came from a Twitter user whose Twitter name is just the letter J. Uh, His or her bio says, born in 1997 in the UK, otherwise pretty anonymous. Anyway, J tweeted, if you say let's get ready to rumble three times in the mirror, at Michael Buffer will appear. And Buffer wrote above it, but please be sure to have your checkbook handy, exclamation point. (laughs) Then various face emojis and fist emojis, and of course the hashtag, let's get ready to rumble, with the R in the circle registered trademark thing. Um, (laughs) I got a laugh out of it, and um, I want to come clean. I resented Michael Buffer for a long time. I didn't know him personally. All I knew is he was making ungodly money for very little work (laughs) while I was grinding away on the Ring Magazine staff for 40 plus hours a week for peanuts. uh, And he was making even more money suing people for using his catchphrase. I have since come to realize he's totally self-aware, able to joke about himself, a good guy. We interviewed him on Radio Row several years back, and I liked him a lot. And of course, he's from Philly, likes all the Philly teams. So I am fully a fan of Michael Buffer and his sense of humor and his standing on social issues. Uh, I still count him as only second best in the competition for Showtime's favorite ring announcer because we love Jimmy Lennon so much. But uh, but he does get Tweet of the Week. Uh, Kieran, thoughts on Buffer or the tweet? Yeah, there was a period for about two or three years where I was hosting weigh-in shows and, and that kind of stuff right. until... I think everybody involved realized I was really terrible at it and stopped giving me those gigs. <laughs> but um, and as a consequence, you know, and obviously, like I see, I would see Michael at fights all the all the time. But but we sort of worked together for the for these. And um, and I actually really did come to, uh, as you said, really enjoy the fact he is very self aware. He actually doesn't take himself at all seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, his brother is the one who really will shake down anybody. Uh, if you so much as even think, let's get ready to rumble quietly, uh, you'll get a, you'll get a legal message from Bruce. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I've always I have very much enjoyed him, and uh, yeah, he's he's you know you have to envy him a little bit because he has the sweetest gig in the entire world. Uh, 
uh, and still going well with it. But yes, also became a better, even bigger fan when I realized that he has the uh, only acceptable social and political opinions. So <laughs> yes. um, definitely, definitely like him for that. Yeah. He's, he's still not Jimmy Lennon, but he's very close. Right. All right. It is time for this week's guest. He's a returning guest and a good friend of ours, uh, someone familiar to all of you. He has been the boxing writer for USA Today and ESPN.com, and now he's living the dream, answerable to exactly nobody but himself. It's both the Peter Parker and J. Jonah Jameson of his own newsletter on Substack, uh, Fight Freaks Unite. It is, of course, Dan Raphael. Welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast, my friend. Thank you very much, Karen. Good to see you. Good to talk to you, Eric, uh, my guys. So let, let's start, Dan, with your thoughts on the plan this year for the pound-for-pound pound king, Canelo Alvarez. Uh, Kieran and I were rooting a bit, for obvious reasons, for the Showtime pay-per-view option. You are a much less biased observer on this one. Did you have a preference between the Bivol-Golovkin combo and the Charlo-Benavidez combo? And what's your level of frustration with people who still find ways to accuse Canelo of, quote, ducking <clears throat> certain fighters? All right, the first part of your question, which did I prefer? My main thought is, it's a beautiful thing to be Canelo Alvarez, because you are going to make tremendous amounts of money to have big events, and you have great opponents to do them against. So the way I looked at it was, if he opted for the PBC uh, uh, deal, which would have, like you said, been Charlo and then Benavides, those would have been tremendous matchups, exciting fights and big events. And he opted for the, uh, for the other deal, that will give him Bivol, uh, followed by Triple G. Of course, uh, Golovkin has to win an upcoming fight. Benavides would have to have won an upcoming fight. Presumably, uh, you know, they would have done that, but in any event. So he couldn't really go wrong either way because both of them were for, God, you know, big, big money, big events, and, and quality opponents. Uh, so if, if I had a pick, though, my personal preference was, and I've got, I mean, if you're a boxing guy, how can you be upset with either one, right? But if, if I had to pick, I kind of felt like the Charlo and Benavides fights were probably more interesting to me personally. I like the other fights also. It's not like there's a negative, but if it's like you have to split hairs at the highest level, I'm interested in Charlo and Benavides. I like Bevel and Triple G. Um, I'm cool with either one, but if, if, if all things being equal, I could have picked, I, I probably would have gone for the other one, but I understand Canelo's point of view, because he's the one that's got to fight the fights. I believe he feels more motivated to take on a guy like a Bivol, a bigger fighter, another title at stake, and and uh, with Triple G, you know, a chance to, uh, you know, even though he feels like that that issues are the issues are settled because he feels like he clearly won fight number two, which is debatable. Uh, he gets a chance finally to just you know make it more definitive, I guess. Right. Okay. And then, and then the part about no matter who he picks, there's always someone or many someone's out there saying, Oh, he's picking that guy. He's ducking this guy. How does it, what, what sort of reaction do, do you have when you see that stuff at this point? I mean, if, if you ever follow my Twitter or my, my columns and stuff, I, it drives me absolutely crazy. Canelo Alvarez has the best resume of any active fighter in boxing. It's not even close. Manny Pacquiao is retired. Uh, he is far and away uh, the best resume guy out there. And he wins his fights, most of them in dominating fashion uh, against all the names. He cleaned out the weight class at super middleweight. People want to say he didn't fight Benavides, and I would submit to them. And I'm a Benavides fan. I bet you guys are too. Who's, you know, he's one of the most exciting guys to, to watch. He's got a good personality. I've enjoyed interviewing him. His resume is nothing. 
I mean, and my make the point this, it's not his fault. He fought the fights and he won them. He's undefeated. Uh, you know, the title wins of which he got stripped. Um, those were his fault. He, he, you know, he got uh, uh, a positive drug test for cocaine. He didn't make weight for one of the fights. They cost him two titles. Um, doesn't make him a bad guy. Just makes him a guy that, you know, either not as disciplined as he should have been as a young man or, or uh, you know, got caught up with some things that I think he is apologetic for. Um, but his resume is really nothing spectacular. And as I have made the point, unless you count a knockout of Andre Dur of Anthony Durrell rather from three years ago, that's his biggest win, which is a nice win, but it's not exactly something that says to you, oh, now you got to be the guy to fight Canelo Alvarez. And Charlo had a fantastic resume as a junior middleweight champion. As a middleweight, it's extraordinarily pedestrian. He's not very active. And he's never fought as a super middleweight. So people who suggest to me that he's somehow ducking Benavides with no resume and an inactive Charlo who's done nothing as a middleweight uh, and, and hasn't really fought that much and never fought at super middleweight, I just don't get it. Bivol, bigger man, Triple G is a legend. I mean, they're not comparable in terms of that. Um, the ducking thing is nonsense. You can't fight everybody. People say, well, I fought Yildrum. Yeah, he fought Yildrum because it was part of a business deal as a mandatory defense to, to get the opportunity to fight Callum Smith. And I would make the point to those people, and I have done this, if you are the best fighter in the world and you make the most money and you put on the biggest events and you are going to fight four times in 11 months, unheard of in today's era, you're entitled to a soft touch in there. Yeah, definitely. Oh, so Showtime didn't get the Canelo pay-per-view, but it does have another intriguing pay-per-view fight on April 16th. Errol Spence against Ordenis Ugas. Um, Ugas has done well as an underdog a few times now. Um, how much upset potential do you see here? And, and if Spence does get by him, the question everyone is going to be asking, of course, how realistic a chance is there of Spence Crawford later this year or maybe next? I mean, I definitely give Ugas a chance to win. It's a very good matchup. It's very intriguing. I'm interested in it. Uh, Ugas is, a, is an excellent fighter. Uh, you know, he had a couple of losses before he was a welterweight, he took some time off, got his mind together, got himself together, uh, put on a little bit of weight. I know he had struggled to make the junior welterweight limit. And since he's been a welterweight, he's been fantastic. The loss to Sean Porter is debatable. A lot of people think he won that fight. Um, you know, he's looked good and he, he's a worthy champion. He, he obviously has the win over Pacquiao, which was obviously uh, the career highlight for him so far. And, uh, and Errol Spence, uh, wanted this fight they wanted to unify they're both in the pbc universe it's a it's a very good matchup uh does he have a chance to win obviously i would never count or dennis Ugas out he's an experienced fighter at the pro level had a great amateur background and olympian uh, on the great cuban national team and uh you know like we've said before other fights that errol has had in, in the, the more recent times you know we're not sure we didn't know how he was going to react after the car accident when he came back and and he looked like he didn't miss a beat when he beat danny garcia and now the same questions will be there for folks who are not sure about uh, what has happened because of the eye injury that he had and the surgery that he underwent. Now, obviously, he was medically cleared. One has to assume that he's okay physically, but you never know. Uh, all that said, I mean, all due respect to Ordenis Ugas, I still favor Errol Spence. To me, he's still one of the very best fighters in boxing, pound for pound. He has been for a number of years. He's got a resume. He's got the amateur credentials, uh, and he's shown uh, you know that form in his professional fights. So, um, I think it's a good fight. I would say he's like, it's like a 60, 40 kind of fight to me with Spence being the guy uh, that would be the favorite as far as if he wins, can he get Crawford? Honestly, that's going to be all about what the financial expectations are from both fighters. Clarence Crawford is a free agent. He can go with whoever wants to come to him with an offer that he finds palatable. Um, I think that both guys would have to understand what the financial 
uh, parameters of a fight like that are. If they really believe it's a massive seller, which I think is frankly one of the reasons it wasn't pursued because the, the point of view of the promoters compared to the expectations of the fighters did not mesh. They think it's some massive gargantuan mega fight. Those of us dorks in boxing, we love it. We think it's a mega fight. But to be a true mega fight for the gargantuan money, it has to appeal to the mainstream. And Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford are great fighters, probably Hall of Famers down the road. But they have yet to achieve that sort of stardom in the mainstream that's going to make it so it generates the bottom line money to take to, to pay these guys. So if they want to do the fight and maybe you know work on a percentage and work their rear ends off to promote the fight, it could probably happen. If they're going to have some you know absolutely outlandish expectations from what their guarantees can be, you know, that's going to make it much more complicated to make. But in terms of promotional and networks and all that business, there's no reason why if uh, Errol Spence wins against Ugas uh, that he couldn't uh, make the fight with Crawford and same for Crawford. I, I mean, that's the fight we've wanted to see for a long, long time. But uh, you know what? If it doesn't happen, so be it. I'm still happy that we got to see what turned out to be an unexpected treat uh, between um, Lee Wood and Michael Common. You know, we expect a great fight from Spence and Crawford. But sometimes we get these great unexpected treasures that pop up. And that was one of them. And, you know, if they don't want to fight each other for their legacies and give the fans what we've asked for for many years, then, you know, that's on them, not on us. It's a Sunday afternoon. How many times have you watched Wood Conlon so far? <laughs> I've watched it twice. I watched it live. I watched it back this morning. And as I was tweeting about this morning, what I didn't, what I hadn't caught last night when I was watching it the first time was uh, the epicness of the Michael Conlon walk-in coming into the uh, Jimi Hendrix classic all along the watchtower. And the best part was in the ring when the music was still playing, he's air guitaring with the gloves on. And I thought that was unbelievable. That just set the tone. Uh, just, a, just a great special fight that was. Yeah, definitely. Um, another fight coming up on Showtime uh, is uh, Tim Zhu making his Showtime debut. And in fact, his U.S. debut uh, in two weeks. 99 times out of 100, the son of a great fighter fails to live up to the hype. From what you've seen of Zhu so far, does he have the potential to be the greatest son of a great fighter that we've ever seen? I'm not, I'd have to think about other sons who have maybe not necessarily reached that level, but, but I'll say this, Tim Zhu's got a serious chance to become a serious champion and be around for a while. I think he's tremendous. I mean, I know a lot of people in the United States had never watched him or seen him. Um, his, his exposure in America has been limited at this point. He's had a couple of appearances on ESPN plus shows that they picked up from Australia. They were on it, you know, ungodly hours. Uh, most people haven't seen him. Um, I, because as I mentioned before, I'm a giant boxing dork. I have watched uh, Tim Zhu quite a bit. Uh, a couple years ago, when I do my annual prospects list at the end of the year, I had Tim Zhu among that top, you know, dozen or 15 or so on that prospect list. So I have followed him, you know, for quite a while at this point. Uh, I think he's gotten a lot better as the time goes by. It's hard to tell at some point because the competition level is not really anything spectacular. I think, uh, the opponent that he has coming up on the Showtime debut fight, uh, Terrell Gachet, uh, is is a is you know, I don't want to call him a stepping stone because I think Gachet is probably a little better than that. But you know he's like a, maybe a gatekeeper. Like if you can beat Gachet, you might have a chance to do something better. If you can't, you might have to reassess where you're going. Um, you know when Gachet has lost, has only been against the best guys, Alara. Um, I forget who the other. He has one other loss to a name opponent. Whose name is, but the point yeah. is. It's, it's a reasonable test for Tim Zhu coming overseas to make his, uh, his, his debut in the United States. So he's, he's an exciting fighter. He's, he's got a lot of skills. He obviously has the great background. I, I do love the fact that he's going to be on Showtime because his father, Costa Zhu, um, had his biggest fights of his Hall of Fame career on Showtime. And, uh, and uh, that's not lost on me. And those of us who have been around for a while uh, understand that. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the sort of great fighter who is the son of another great fighter that it's such a limited list because where do you define great? Uh, You know, I think Corey Spinks achieved a lot, but I don't know if his dad was a great fighter. Uh, Obviously, Floyd Mayweather. Mayweather. Right. Was his dad a great fighter? No, he's a good fighter. So uh, I think maybe to this point, Layla Ali is the most accomplished child of a great fighter. Uh, But so it, it sounds, though, like at least Tim Zhu, from what you've seen, he can get to that championship level, although obviously we still have a lot to learn. Is is basically what we're yeah. I mean, and one thing point. about one thing about Tim Zhu, uh, Eric, is this: when I've watched him fight, the way he just holds his hands, the move, the way he moves, like I, you have to do kind of a double take to not think that you're looking at his old man. Right. Um, mm. You know, and, and and you know, I know you guys were. Uh, I'm not sure how how many of those fights you covered, but I covered Costa Zhu's career as an active fighter at a, at the championship level. He was to me. Uh, in the in the 20 plus years I have done this to me is probably in the top two or three of the junior welterweights I have seen um, you know it's hard to rank a guy like a Mayweather as a junior welterweight because he only had you know such a brief time in that weight class same thing with Manny Pacquiao but for guys that had any length of longevity in that weight class you got to say that that Kostazu is one of the very best over the last you know 25 years maybe frankly in the history of the weight class um, you know his son is a bigger fighter he's a junior middleweight so he's a bigger guy but uh, he he just looks like his father. He his 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 just the, when you watch the videos, it, 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 he just looks like he's his old man. Yeah. Um, question for you that has nothing to do with Showtime fights or fighters. Uh, we know you're a fan of the elite little guys, and you'll be voting for Chocolatito Gonzalez as the first ballot Hall of Famer when the time comes. I know that much. But Eric and I were marveling last week about how remarkable his revival has been. Uh, like us. Did you assume he was done after that Strisaket rematch? And how surprising and enjoyable has this comeback run from him been for you? You know, I just wrote a column on that very topic on my uh, Fight Freaks Unite newsletter on Substack.com. And, uh, you know, I can't say that I totally wrote him off after the, the knockout. And I was at both of those Strisaket fights. And let me tell you, that second knockout, the second fight when he got knocked out, you were like, okay, that was really bad. That was as bad a knockout as you'll see. A one shot and just kind of out cold and it was just you know and and guys in the smaller weight classes don't don't usually have you know career arcs that go into their mid to late 30s you know by and large a lot of those guys that fight in the smaller weight classes you know they're kind of spent bullets and done by the time they reach uh, their late 20s even their you know the 30th birthday so to see him at that point um go out like that you're kind of like okay you know maybe he can come back and still do something you know the, the biggest thing about his return is that besides the knockout he had some injuries he had a knee injury that kept him out of action for a while and so even when he came back against like a little bit of a lesser grade opponent you know you're still weren't sure how he's going to do because of the fact that he was still kind of overcome the physical problems that seems to have taken care of itself so the knockout's now well behind him the physical problems in terms of his knee are behind him and uh he has had a revival i think he's looked fantastic you know i i thought that he would beat Caliify. When they fought uh, in uh, 2020, that was one of the last fights I covered before the pandemic. But I was surprised that he did it in such a dominating fashion and got the knockout. And then, you know, a couple of fights later, he has the the second fight with uh, Juan Francisco Estrada, which, you know, he didn't get the official decision. There was a a junior bantamweight unification. Uh, You know, for my money, he won that fight. I've watched that fight many times. And I don't care how you score it. There's no way that, that Estrada, in my mind, won. Certainly not. The, the horrendous 117-111 scorecard by the uh, now infamous Carlos Sucre, whose scorecard was so terrible that the WBA suspended him. 
So the revival is real. And then to watch him take apart a, a young, strong guy like Martinez, uh, granted a flyweight moving up in weight who actually didn't make the weight, um, you know, and it was, you know, a lot of people thought he might have a chance to win. It wasn't competitive. Uh, Chuck Latito just beat him down. Um, you know, judges gave him a couple of rounds, but I would argue you could have that score uh, a shutout even, maybe one round in favor of, uh, of uh, Martinez. But it is a remarkable revival. He was an automatic first ballot Hall of Famer, even if he had stopped fighting after the Cersaquette two losses. But what he's done since then with the performance against CFI, the performance against uh, Estrada, even in the official loss, and then of course the performance against Martinez. Uh, he's 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 a tremendous all-time legend, one of the greatest fighters in the history of boxing, whatever weight class. Uh, I made the argument that among the smaller weight guys of multi-divisional champions, he might be the very best of all of them, and he's in the conversation with uh, I say a Ricardo Lopez, a Mark Johnson, and Ivan Calderon. I'm saying them specifically because they won titles in multiple weight classes as opposed to like a Carbajal only one uh, in one weight class, but uh, just, just a great, great fighter and a, a good guy outside the ring, humble, um, fought everybody too. You know, I mean, I made a list of the fighters he fought that were, you know, former title holders or, you know, also a pound for pound caliber guys or top, top fighters. He's fought the murderers row, if you will, of guys from straw weight to junior band weight over the last, you know, 15 years, you know, the quadras, Sarungi Sai, Estrada, you know, uh, Akira Geishi, I mean, Taki, you know, Katsunari Takayama, a lot of Asian fighters, you know, for those who don't follow, but there's a lot of quality Asian guys. He defeated Arroyo. I mean, just on down the line, Calify and now Martinez. I mean, the resume is speaks for itself and the performances. I argue he should be 53 and one because the Sarung Vasai first fight was a robbery in my mind. And the, and the loss against Estrada was a robbery. And the fact of the matter is, had he gotten the decision he deserved against Sarung Vasai in the first fight, there never would have been a rematch from to get knocked right. out of. Yeah, amazing. The way to know if you're a true fight freak is, as you were just listing all those names of all the great little fighters, if you started getting a little tingly, a little excited, <laughs> that's that's a sign that you're a fight freak, just hearing those names roll okay, off I gotta say one thing. tongue. If our man Cliff Rolled is listening, you know he was getting dingly. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you mentioned your uh, your newsletter, Dan. Uh, and uh, at the end of every newsletter, you share a little something from your massive collection of fight memorabilia, posters, programs, trading cards, etc. I'm going to ask a, a hypothetical in order to find out what your absolute favorite things in your collection oh, are. Oh, boy. Okay. So let's say... There's a fire in your house. Your wife is fine. Your son is fine. Your pets are fine. They're all safe and out of the house. You have time to grab three items of boxing oh. memorabilia before you have to get out the door. <laughs> what three items are you grabbing? Dude, that's wrong, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What am I grabbing? You, you can go oh. through sort of the thought process a little bit of just things you're You're not necessarily committing to them as you say them. So you can <laughs> talk me through it a little bit. All right, so one of the things I have that's not a program, not a poster, not a trading card, which are the three sort of main physical uh, manifestations of my collection. Uh, and then there's other like other, you know, physical objects, but those are the three collecting sort of uh, genres, the programs, cards, and, and, and uh, posters. But one of the most special items that I have is a, is a fight used um, quarterman, row, uh, quarterman jacket that was worn by one of Arturo Gatti's cornermen in his fight against Oscar De La Hoya. 
not a great fight. Obviously, Gotti got knocked out, but it, it, it was worn in that fight by one of Arturo's guys. And Arturo signed it and, and signed it personalized to me. Beautiful white and blue robe, beautiful signature, you know, wrote my name. Um, still has blood on the pocket. Mm. Um, that that I'm definitely saving. Uh, and, I, and again, I don't collect like fight worn stuff and fight you stuff, but I have two items that, that are in that category. That, that jacket is one of them. Another one, you know, and you guys know me a long time, you know, my two favorite fighters are Arturo Gatti and Asseleno Popo Freitas. So when Popo Freitas uh, won a lightweight title uh, at Foxwoods, um, he was fighting against Zahir Rahim. Actually, I think that was a title defense. Um, and I, I kind of spent some time with him and his team that week. And when we were leaving to go to the airport on Sunday, he gave me, I didn't ask him for it, but he, he knows I'm a big fan. And I think it was just a sense of appreciation. It's not signed, but he gave me the warm-up jacket, Popo Freitas warm-up jacket that says, you know, it's beautiful Brazilian flag colors and with his name on the front and back uh, in beautiful stitching. And he gave that to me. Hmm. And I have those two things together. So, Eric, can I take them both as one category? The two. The okay. Two okay. okay. I'll, I'll, I'll make this a little less miserable and difficult for you. Yes. You can right. grab the two, right. the two jackets right. at once. You get two more okay, items. So I'm taking, I'm Number two taking... can't be your entire poster collection. We can, we <laughs> right. Can... right. No more combining. Okay. This is it. Okay. I couldn't carry them all at once anyway. Um, right. You know, as far as that goes, I think probably the, the most meaningful poster to me for a lot of reasons you'll understand is, First of all, we all love the first Arturo Gatti Mickey Ward fight. Um, there wasn't a lot of memorabilia for that fight. There was no HBO poster. There was no program. There was, you know, basically if you have a ticket or maybe, and there's not even if you ever sell the ticket, it doesn't even list their names on it. It just says, you know, boxing, Mohegan Sun, I think boxing after dark. But Mohegan Sun made, you know, a few posters that hang around the property. Very, very rare. Like you couldn't even go on. On, on Google or anywhere on the internet and find an image of the artwork or the poster until I posted a picture of the one that I have. So, but what I also have is uh, I have one of those posters, super, super rare from the first Gaddy Ward that is autographed both by Mickey Ward and by Arturo Gaddy. Mm, so yeah. that of, of, you know, and I have a, a you know, a vast collection, over 5,000 posters, uh, but I'm definitely saving that one. Uh, that's very meaningful. And, uh, now I got only one more thing I can say. One more thing. Eric. The rest of it burns. Sorry. <laughs> That's, cold, bro. That's just wrong. Because um, now I got to think about the posters and the programs. And the, oh, I mean, I have my cars. Holy moly. I mean, I, I guess I'd have to go for, I have, uh, I have a number of like PSA graded in mint nine condition Muhammad Ali uh, very hard to find in top condition because the paper is super thin. But I have like the, almost a the complete run of his Panini stickers from the 1960s, as dorky as that sounds. But the 1966 one, which is considered by many to be the rookie, uh, I have that in, in incredibly beautiful condition. It's a very low population card. It's worth a lot of money. I'd probably have to grab that. Okay. All right. Those and are, I've, those let are all my pro I've, let, I've let all my programs burn. <laughs> Sorry, there's only so much time before that fire, uh, you know, is on top of you. You got to get out the door. I think you oh made good God. choices, though. Can't oh. believe you didn't pick up your HBO boxing truck. Don't you get? Didn't you get one of the very, very few HBO boxing trucks that were ever? Produced? I did. As a matter of fact, when <laughs> it's like a like a Hess truck or like a like a it's a what is it a one one sixteenth scale or whatever. Something like the that. HBO yeah. truck. When my okay, so anybody that read me from like a time, I used to I used to mercilessly mock the HBO truck, <laughs> right? 
when they when they changed the HBO opening credits, which I never adjusted to, and frankly, to me, was the sign of their decline. Um, <laughs> and so I had my ups and downs with, uh, at the time, the president of HBO Sports, Ken Hirschman, um, never personal, always was friendly with him, but we would have our our professional disputes about stuff. And, and to show you what a, a mensch Ken Hirschman is, when my son was born, uh, he'll turn nine years old coming up uh, next month. When my son was born as a, as a, a present, when he was born, uh, Hirschman sent a, uh, a, one of those HBO toy trucks for my son, which to this day sits on a shelf in his, uh, in his room uh, with some of his toys. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't be saying, if my son wanted to save that, he can do it on his own. Right. <laughs> Are you sending it back in? <laughs> right. Oh, no, no wow. but this is interesting. Harsh this parenting. Is, I, but I suppose this adds a layer to it that, you know, your son and your wife can each grab three things too. But the next time we have you on, we'll get, we'll get the six additional items you would ask them to save as you guys all head out. Absolutely. Okay. All right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Dan, mate, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate uh, having you on. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on, except Eric ruined my day telling me my house is going to burn. <laughs> it's just a hypothetical. Everything's fine. Do check your smoke alarms, though. <laughs> right, exactly. That's a little, little public service announcement for right. those out there listening. <laughs> All right, our thanks again to Dan. Uh, and you know, Kieran, uh, he might have the best Gaddy Ward 1 memorabilia, but I can always hold over Dan that I was at that fight. And he called out sick and missed that one. Oh, that's right. He, he yes. has the memorabilia, but I have the memories. There you go. Some people there might prefer the memorabilia, though. <laughs> it's pretty cool memorabilia. Um, but you don't have to rush back into a burning house to save your memories. <laughs> no, the, those will disappear slowly on their own. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's move on to the news. And this is one of those weeks without a main event, uh, just a bunch of undercard items. So we'll break them up into two groupings. We'll split them into news involving notable heavyweights and non-heavyweight news. Uh, three heavyweight adjacent items for you, Kieran. First, Anthony Joshua's search for a new trainer is over. He has selected Angel Fernandez, an assistant in his camp the last three years. We'll be talking about the Klitschko shortly, and one of them, Vladimir, made some boxing-related news this week. He called for a global boycott of Russian athletes from sporting competitions. He was asked if that included Dmitry Bivol and his scheduled May fight with Canelo Alvarez, and he said yes, explaining, quote, Every Russian representative in this case needs to be sanctioned because this way we show to Russia that the world is against his senseless war and there is no good in this war. And sad news out of Omaha, Nebraska, where popular former heavyweight title challenger Ron Stander died Tuesday at age 77 of complications from diabetes. Stander was best known for his bloody TKO loss to champ Joe Frazier in Omaha in 1972. Uh, Kieran, your thoughts on Ron Stander, Klitschko's comments, and AJ's news? So first of all, I was sad to hear about Ron Stander. I met him a few years back when Terence Crawford fought wow. Yorkis Gamboa in Omaha. And it was a phenomenal atmosphere that night. It's still one of the best ringside atmospheres I've experienced. And Ron loved it. He'd been a bit of a forgotten man, really. And it was his opportunity to feel some of the reflected love from that was being shown on Terrence. I, I mean, he loved it. He stood up and he shadow boxed ringside for the HBO cameras between rounds. The fight fans loved it. Um, yeah, it was a nice little uh, little reminder of his existence uh, and uh, rest in peace to him. Um, as for AJ, this feels like a good move for him. We said, you know, a few weeks back that he looked like he was struggling with confidence and he clearly wanted and needed to make a change. But it makes sense that he would want to do so with someone 
with whom he's already comfortable. This feels like probably it was a good balance of, you know, still being with someone he trusts, whereas nonetheless taking it off a little bit into a, into a different direction. Um, as for Vladimir Klitschko's comments about Russian athletes, specifically Bivol, I, I genuinely don't know how to feel about this. Um, I, I, I totally get the sporting events, and I strongly support the sporting events shouldn't be in Russia. I think that Russian teams... Um, the Russian national soccer team or, or teams based in the country should be denied the opportunity to compete in international competition. I genuinely don't know how to feel about individual athletes. Um, part of it makes me feel uncomfortable, the fact that we're denying people opportunities based solely on their passports. But there's precedent, like South African athletes and teams were denied the opportunity to participate in international competition for years and years. Um, and that made sense. And it eventually bore through. through. And I, I get it. Um, I certainly see that there's an, a strong argument for, you know, given that Russians are being denied real reporting on Ukraine, it's a good way for them to, to sort of have it brought home to them the extent of global opprobrium they're facing. Um, so I, I just don't know. But, you know, I, I would yield to people who understand this kind of situation better than I do. And that includes Vladimir. Um, one thing I can say with knowledge and confidence, boxing will not do the right thing. Um, <laughs> if it does do the right thing, it will be accidentally and for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, boxing is terrible and everybody in it is terrible. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear all kinds of comments about, oh yeah, you know, it's a good thing that we're doing this because we're engaging Russia and we're getting people's eyes, you know, and Russians will be watching this and it'll give us a chance to get a message out and blah, 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 blah. That won't be why the fight's going ahead. Um, it's a sport that cannot wait for any opportunity to go suck at any available teat if it provides enough money, um, including Saudi Arabia, which is flattening cities in Yemen and which just on Saturday beheaded 81 people in a mass execution. But that's the kind of country that boxing will willingly go to for money. And I do not expect it to make any kind of meaningful stance um, against Russia or Russian athletes, whatever is the appropriate thing to do. And with, and like I said, with regard to individuals like Dmitry Bivol, I just don't know. Uh, other news items. Uh, Ron Stander is not the only death to report, unfortunately. Uh, there was a ring fatality in Jakarta, Indonesia on March 3rd that we just learned of a few days ago. Veteran Indonesian lightweight Hiro Tito never regained consciousness following a seventh round KO loss and died at age 35. In comparatively trivial news, the British Boxing Board of Control took action against Judge Ian John Lewis for his 114-111 scorecard in favor of Josh Taylor against Jack Catterall, downgrading him as an official from A star class to A class, which means he can't work European title or world title fights for now. Uh, staying in Britain, Conor Ben's next fight has been announced. It will be April 16th in Manchester against Chris Van Heerden. And lastly, uh, Keith Eidek of Boxing Scene reported that Sergei Kovalev's next fight will not be against Meng Fan Long, as had been discussed, but rather he'll take on Tervel Pulev, the cruiserweight younger brother of Kubrat Pulev, on May 14th, atop a thriller pay-per-view so that's going to be an exciting card uh eric comments on any or all of these items i'll take the tragic hero tito news first uh, mm. this is of course the absolute worst possible outcome in boxing it's all, always awful when it happens yeah. and then i read up a bit about tito he had a wife he had two daughters Ugh. and he took this fight specifically because the paycheck would help him build a house for his family He's just out there trying to make a better life for himself and his family. And uh, this sport is one of the most dangerous ways to do it. Um, just an awful tragedy. Um, as you said, everything else 
here feels trivial compared to that. Yeah. Uh, but some quick comments. Uh, the Triller experiment continues to not go well. Uh, pretty <laughs> much all downhill since the big hit they had with Tyson Jones. Uh, I will not be paying money for Sergey Kovalev's next fight, regardless of opponent. Ben versus Van Heerden is fine, I suppose. Nothing exciting. At best, a lateral move after the yeah. KO of Chris Algieri. But if the goal is to blast through all of the white welterweight Chris's in boxing, <laughs> Ben is well on his way there. Uh, and the downgrading of Ian John Lewis. Good. Um, it's not an earth-shaking punishment, but it's something. It's some level of accountability for an indefensible scorecard. This should happen with probably 20 or 30 judges a year. Um, you got to start somewhere. Start with one judge. Let's see other commissions all over the globe follow. Uh, and, you know, let Ian John Lewis earn his way back into the biggest fights. Uh, even though a downgrade is not a suspension, I do view this as good news, a positive step for boxing. And uh, following on from what you were saying before about uh, boxing in general and the way it behaves, how often do we even get to say that, that there's a positive <laughs> yeah. step for boxing? Truth, indeed. Um, all right. To conclude, it is time for this week's top five list. Uh, last week, Eric set me the task of listing the top five in-ring performances by the men of the hour, Vitaly and Vladimir Klitschko. And I must say, there's a certain poignance to watching uh, some of their earlier outings as I was doing uh, preparing for this, knowing how their lives would turn out. Mm. Um, anyway, my top five list contains two from Vladimir and three from Vitaly or Vitaly. Um, there's a reasonably lengthy honorable mentions list too. I suspect, I think particularly it's a commentary on, on the nature of their careers and particularly Vladimir's that um, it's one of those lists that I think there could be all kinds of disagreement on um, yeah. and how you regard a good performance or not and a meaningful performance but anyway that said here goes my number five november 15th 2014 it's vladimir ko5 kubrat pulev um at the time i don't recall this being especially remarked upon or, or necessarily greatly appreciated i think that if i recall correctly in the aftermath pulev took as much criticism at least as much as klitschko reserved received praise, because this was a pretty one-sided annihilation. Pulev was down twice in the first round and barely survived that round. He took a thumping in rounds two through four and was dropped again and stopped in the fifth. He didn't seem to have much of a game plan, Pulev, and was pretty hopelessly outgunned. But I feel like this win looks a little better in hindsight. Klitschko was 38 years old at this point, and he would only win one more fight. Uh, Pulev wouldn't lose again for six years until he was similarly dominated by Anthony Joshua. Um, but a prime AJ needed four more rounds to get rid of him, than an aging Klitschko did. For all its one-sidedness, this was actually one of the more exciting wins of the latter stage of Vladimir Klitschko's career. And I think it holds up quite well as an illustration of the kind of damage that Vladimir could do when he actually chose to really let his hands go. Yeah, interesting choice. I, I had that in my honorable mentions. I didn't uh, quite squeak it into the, the top five. But yeah, what really stands out for me about that fight, I, I can't remember whether I was particularly impressed or not with Klitschko's performance, but I do recall just the fact that it was actually fun and exciting and it had been a yeah. little while since we'd had a fun, exciting uh, knockout win for Vladimir Klitschko. So it, it was definitely good for him on that front. Uh, didn't quite make my top five, but I can see the case for it. All right, number four, June 29th, 2002, Vladimir KO5 Ray Mercer. Um, yes, 
Mercer was starting to get long in the tooth at this point, but he had been unbeaten for six years since losing back-to-back decisions to Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis. And the Lewis loss was perhaps the toughest fight in Lennox's career to that point, and one which no small number of observers thought that Mercer won. Um, And even when Mercer had lost in the past, it had been over the distance. He'd never been stopped. I'm not sure he'd ever been down, actually, but Klitschko dropped him hard in the first round. And Mercer admitted that he never really recovered from that. He kept on going, though, although Vladimir commented afterwards that perhaps that wasn't a sensible decision. He took a lot of punches and made the fight longer. It was not so much healthy for him, but he had to make that decision, said Vladimir afterwards. And so uh, finally, a referee, Randy Newman, stepped in uh, in the sixth round, excuse me, not the fifth, stepped in to stop the fight. Uh, this was Klitschko at his imperious best before the shock losses to Corey Sanders and Lehman Brewster threatened to upend his career when he looked destined to reenact his recently aired fictional tussle with Lewis from Ocean's Eleven. This is when he was dominant and still exciting, and the potential seemed fairly limitless at this point, I think. So this one is actually further down my list of honorable mentions. Um, I was at this fight, uh, lucky enough to be ringside for this one, and my recollection is that Vlad was impressive, but that we were kind of disappointed he wasn't more aggressive when it was clear Mm. that Ray Mercer didn't have much to offer, and, and was in trouble and that Vlad just didn't quite step on the gas enough for us. We kind of came away feeling a little cold about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that, not that we were like questioning, Oh, this guy's actually a fraud. He's no good. Just, just, we were, I think hoping for maybe even a little bit more at that point from Vladimir against Ray Mercer. So this, this one's uh, a little bit of a disagreement here. Uh, this one uh, definitely not making my top five. Yeah. And like I said, this is kind of what I expected from mm-hmm. this list. And I think it's a nature of, of, of their reigns, but uh, uh, number three for me, October 11th, 2008, uh, Vitaly TK08, Sam Peter. Um, Vitaly had been essentially retired for four years. Uh, he had a serious knee, knee injuries. Uh, he planned a comeback uh, a year earlier, but suffered a back injury that required surgery. Uh, one of the sanctioning bodies granted him the title of champion emeritus and promised him a title shot whenever he wanted, which garnered a fair bit of opprobrium. Um, And when he did come back, it was against the Nigeria nightmare, Sam Peter, whose only defeat had come against Vladimir in a fight in which he dropped the younger Klitschko three times. With Vitaly's time away from the ring, Peter was somewhat favored here. Um, But instead, Vitaly absolutely dominated him. He used his reach and his power, and yes, actually his defense to pummel him from a distance and just give Peter no chance to basically land anything until Peter retired on his stool after eight one-sided rounds. And as a result, both brothers held portions of the heavyweight championship. Many people said to me that after having over three years out, I would not be able to come back, Vitaly said afterwards. But these people thought I was just sleeping for three years. But every day I was out of the ring, I trained. Every day for two or three hours. Also, the timeout gave me time to recover from injuries, and I now have total health. Vladimir and I, we always had the dream to reign as champions at the same time. You know, without dreams, life is boring. Hmm. Um, All right, we finally have uh, an agreement. Uh, This one was also in my top five. I had it at number four, so almost the same spot. Uh, Yeah, totally impressive for all the reasons that you said, given how long Vitaly had been off and the fact that Peter was still quite well regarded at the time. And uh, I can't remember who I expected to win the fight, but I definitely did not expect Vitaly to dominate the way he did. It was a tremendous performance coming off basically almost four years out of the ring. Yeah. Uh, number two, June 26th, 1999, Vitaly KO2, 
Herbie Hyde. Uh, this was the fight that really announced the Klitschko's to a global audience. Um, Hyde held an alphabet belt at heavyweight, although he was not, of course, the real heavyweight champion. But he was a capable, if smallish, heavyweight whose only loss had come to Riddick Bowe four years previously. Um, Hyde actually won the first round on the scorecards, although it was close. But then Klitschko stepped in, landed a right hand that dropped Hyde. And from that moment, the end was near. Another right hand sent Hyde crashing to the canvas. And although he was just about able to haul himself up, it wasn't in time. And uh, the Klitschko era, I think, pretty much begins here. Hmm, interesting. Now we have one that I didn't even have on my honorable mention list. Ah. <laughs> Although maybe I should have. Maybe it should have at least made my honorable mentions. Um, but yeah, I guess I... I I'm trying to think at what point I actually got to see this fight because it didn't uh, air in the U.S. Mm. initially. So it might have been like a uh, not until uh, YouTube kind of fight that I finally yeah. saw this one. And maybe I'm downgrading it a bit because of that. Or maybe I just don't regard Herbie Hyde uh, highly enough. But um, yeah, didn't even have this uh, in my honorable mentions. I, I can see the case for it, though. But uh, this is interesting how uh, how different our lists are turning out to be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think we're probably the, the same here. Um, you very specifically said when you gave me this that they were the best performances, not necessarily the best wins. And number one, it's June 21st, 2003, Vitaly KO by six, Lennox Lewis. Um, the four years since that Hyde win, they were a little bit of a roller coaster for Vitaly. Yes, there were clear wins over the likes of Ross Purity and Orlin Norris and Vaughn Bean. But then there was that loss to Chris Bird when he retired on his stool with a shoulder injury, despite being very far ahead in the fight. Um, boxing fans and media questioned his heart, which in hindsight seems an absolutely ludicrous accusation. Um, but he blew those doubts away with his performance against the heavyweight champion. Uh, Lewis was coming off his win over Mike Tyson. And truth be told, I think he was already thinking a little bit about retiring to a Jamaican beach and uh, and uh, a day's worth of, you know, and being able to smoke pot every day. He, um, he'd been slated to face Kirk Johnson until Johnson pulled out with an injury. And at late notice, Lennox took on the very different challenge of Vitaly Klitschko instead. And Klitschko was up for it. And he tore into Lewis from the off. Lewis looking in very real danger of losing by stoppage in those early rounds. But he hauled himself back into it and, of course, opened up a horrendous Grand Canyon-sized gash over Klitschko's eye. Um, that gash caused the fight to be stopped, and rightly so. But the vehemence of Vitaly's protests, as well as his performance in the fight up until that point, I think really rewrote the narrative of Vitaly's courage in the ring. Um, it seems wrong to make the number one fight a defeat, but this was a thrilling performance against the lineal heavyweight champion. It brought Vitaly to within a whisker of taking that crown for himself. You know, and I think it helped convince Lennox that... Uh, but hanging out on that beach was probably a pretty good idea after all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Yes, we are indeed uh, in full agreement on this one. This was my number one also for all the reasons that you stated, just completely redefined who Vitaly was and the way that we viewed him and, and launched his career toward the Hall of Fame levels that it ended up at. Just a tremendously gutsy and given the level of opposition and the fact that he was ahead four rounds to two on most scorecards uh, through six rounds, really skillful performance as well in its own way from Vitaly. Lots of different honorable mentions and it'd be interesting to see if any of these are also honorable mentions for you or if they made it onto your list. <laughs> yeah. I think um, when you, as you go through these, if you say one that's in my top five, I may uh, step okay. in, interrupt and let you know. Yep. That's uh, okay. that's in my top five. 
So there was Vladimir TKO to Derek Jefferson. There was Vladimir's win over Sam Peter, but I mentioned in which he was knocked down three times. It came not long after his loss to Lehman Brewster. And I think even if it wasn't necessarily the most dominant performance, it did. It was an important performance for Vladimir to prove that he could take a shot and go down and come back and still fight. Um, his second f- win over Chris Bird, the TKO7. Um, that's that's a top fiver for me. I have that one at number is. three. Okay. Um, Chris went into that really thinking that Vladimir was vulnerable and uh, did not fight a good fight. And Vladimir really uh, took it to him and uh, really the most dominant performance against a guy who was really uh, a fly in the ointment of those brothers for a while. Um, I, I put his win over, Vladimir's win over David Hay. It was not an exciting fight, but... Um, he really did shut up David Hay, uh, who was extremely mouthy in the whole build-up to that fight and, and really just shut down his offense. I also put in here, and the only reason I didn't put it in the top five and I was tempted to is I just didn't want to have two losses in the top mm. five. And that was his loss to Anthony Joshua, which was a terrific fight. It was a really good fight. It was a very good performance by Vladimir Klitschko. If I hadn't had the Vitaly loss to Lennox in that top five, I think I would have put this in the top five because it was really a good fight. Um, silence from you, though. So you didn't put it in the top five. <laughs> no, although it was the clo- that was kind of my number six. I had a similar okay. a similar mental debate of, uh, gee, do I really want two losses in here? And so right. I didn't put it in, but but I can see the case for it. Um, is that all of your honorable mentions, or are there a few more? No, I've got a few. A few okay, for Vitaly. Yeah. Um, Vitaly's win over Danny Williams or Corey Sanders or Kirk Johnson were all yeah. good, strong performances. I thought um, you could probably pick a few others. I I feel like his second career sort of peaked after the Sam Peter fight, but um, I'm guessing there's still a couple that I've missed that you think should be in the top five. Well, what you just named one of them. Uh, I had I had the Vitaly KO2 Kirk Johnson at number okay. two. Um, now, I know Kirk Johnson is not remembered as anything special, really, but he was a talented heavyweight who was pretty well regarded still at the time, and there was something about the way that Vitaly just ran right through him and the crowd was eating it up at uh in new york um like that was the peak of vitaly mania coming off the Mm. lennox lewis fight he was suddenly seen as maybe the next big thing at heavyweight and then he came out and just destroyed kirk johnson and that one really stuck with me so i had that at number two and then at number five I had Vladimir's win over Calvin Brock. Um, oh. Again, Calvin Brock not remembered as a great heavyweight, but he was a very good heavyweight, undefeated at the time. And uh, I thought it was a good performance from Vladimir that finished with a decisive knockout. Uh, KO7 was the result there. So I slid that one in at number five, although certainly uh, that was a pretty, pretty debatable placement, whether that could have been our honorable mention. I did have a few other honorable mentions. Uh, you mentioned Vitaly and Sanders. I thought the Vlad's first win over Chris Bird was also impressive in its own mm. way. His win over Jamil McCline was a big one. Mm-hmm. And then two later Vitaly uh, performances that I thought were, you know, worth mentioning, but nowhere close to top five consideration. Uh, KO tens over both Chris Ariola and Tomas Adamek. Yeah, I did almost, I should have actually put the, uh, the Ariola one at least in the honorable mentions one. Cause that, that was an impressive beat down, but um, yeah, it's interesting. It's just like our, 
anti-Larry Holmes top five. <laughs> yes, we are all over the map with this one. Yeah, and I'm not shocked. I mean, A, they had a lot of wins between them, so there was a lot to pick to pick from. And yeah, there is that question of what do you call a, a good Klitschko performance? Because sometimes they were efficient and methodical, right. uh, and sometimes they were more spectacular. Um, Vitaly more likely to be the spectacular, generally speaking. Yeah. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to our good friend Pat Rayfield for joining us. And uh, he's now very nervously checking all the uh, smoke alarms and fire extinguishers <laughs> in his house. Um, we will be back next week with a full preview and predictions for Sue Gaucher, Triple Header. Uh, and we expect to have some other. Until then, stay tuned.